0: It's Aspen Ideas to go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. In America's current political climate, members of the CIA, FBI, and NSA have become must-watch television. President Trump has disparaged the intelligence community and pulled out of multilateral security efforts like the Iran nuclear deal. Former Homeland Security Advisor Lisa Monaco says it's an unsteady time.
1: The thing I'm most concerned about is this obliteration of norms, is this erosion of many democratic principles that we've seen, whether it's attacks on the Justice Department and the FBI, and that's that's the thing I think we should all be focused on.
0: Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events held by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Institute's Homeland Security Program. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Foreign policy and national security stories have been dominating the news cycle. Special counsel Robert Mueller is continuing his investigation into Russian meddling. The White House is preparing to meet with North Korea's Kim Jong-un next month after the country released three American prisoners, and the U.S. withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal. What do all of these global moving parts mean for the future of America? Lisa Monaco, who you heard at the top of the show, sits down with former CIA chief John Brennan and former director of national intelligence James Clapper to unravel the latest headlines. Their conversation is led by Nicole Wallace, an NBC political analyst. She was also President George W. Bush's communications director. Wallace asks James Clapper the first question. This conversation was held May 10th, shortly after North Korea freed the American prisoners. I just want to start
2: with with something that that, um, Director Brennan and I talked about today and ask about your thoughts and ask about all the things that are living side by side for the first time, the tremendously joyful um, occurrence of seeing three detainees return from North Korea alongside a president talking about the ratings that will garner at 3 a.m.
3: It was uh, actually very gratifying to me personally to see that since... uh, Last time we did that was when I uh, went to North Korea in, in uh, November f- 2014 and brought out uh, two citizens who were incarcerated in hard labor conditions <laughs> and uh, we should celebrate no matter what or how it happened uh, getting our citizens out of uh, a place like North Korea in, in less than ideal uh, conditions. So, you know, I felt good about that. Uh, we, I got a text from my son, his high school teacher down in Southwest Virginia, he said, Gee, this was a little different than when you brought the two back, you know, yeah. the arrival at, uh, at Andrews. And, of course, I, I did take note of the reference to, uh, you know, high TV ratings at 3 o'clock in the morning or something. And uh, in our case, we tried to stay uh, invisible. Uh, we dropped, uh, we landed at McCord Air Force Base in Washington State and dropped off the two detainees uh, because that's where their families were and that was the main objective was to get them reunited with their family and i I didn't get off the airplane uh, wanted to stay out of the colleague lights I, I did go up the cockpit though and watch the reunion of the families, which was really heartrending it was uh, 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 certainly a highlight of my time as uh, as D- D-I among a lot of low lights, but that was uh, <laughs> clearly uh, a highlight. Okay.
2: I, I, I asked the question the way I did because yeah. I think that um, what, what you just described is the norm, the way you removed yourself from the event, you watched from the cockpit. And so much of what we feel as as reporters covering this White House is to not allow the obliteration of norms to go unremarked. Let people make up their own mind. People vote for whoever they want. But let's not let the obliteration of norms. This was the dignified and normal way to handle an occasion like that. That yeah. is not what happened last night. Can you speak to... Um, any thoughts about where we are in this moment yeah. um, and, and, and about this sort of the, every yeah. time, every event, whether it's the most um, sort of sensitive and urgent national security imperative or um, you know, bringing uh, extramarital affairs into the briefing room, whatever it is, yeah. that there seems to be a norm obliterated every day.
1: So, uh, first, let me agree with Jim on this issue of uh, the return of the U.S. citizens last night or early this morning. We should give credit where credit is due, and it is absolutely an accomplishment uh, that we should credit and we should praise and we should be uh, joyful for the return of these citizens to their families, regardless of of politics. Um, I think that the norm issue, whether it's in this instance And all the other things you averred to in your question, uh, those are the things I'm most concerned about when we think about the moment that we're in, right? So, you know, there are policy differences that, you know, some things the administration does that I've agreed with, some, many that I disagree with. Uh, But the biggest concern I have, aside from policy differences, which is why, you know, you have elections, elections matter, and that's appropriate, right, to have these differences. The thing I'm most concerned about, though, is this obliteration of norms, is this erosion of um, norms and many democratic principles that we've we've seen, whether it's attacks on the Justice Department and the FBI. Those are the things that I think will far, um, you know, they'll transcend all these individual policy differences. As concerned as I am on some of those, the much greater impact is this chipping away in this erosion of norms that we're seeing. And that's that's the thing I think we should all be focused on. And um, Dr. Brennan, you and I talked about this at 4 o'clock, but one
2: of the other um, things that coexist around any um, uh, objective analysis of the president's approach to North Korea is that, um, Obviously, everybody hopes that when an American president goes to a summit in Singapore, uh, as this president plans to do in June, with a leader like Kim Jong-un, that, that America comes out on top, you're worried that, that he's been duped.
4: Well, I do think that Kim Jong-un, who is not honorable, nor nice, uh, <laughs> he is a bloody, murderous despot, uh, Fortunately, has been masterful in terms of how he has handled the situation with mm-hmm. the United States. I think it was very intentional in terms of his escalation as far as the acceleration of their nuclear testing, ballistic missile testing, as well as saber rattling as a way to ratchet up the tensions uh, between the United States and North Korea, and then to make the adjustments, and then to be seen as much more accommodating in terms of saying, I'm gonna sit down, I'm going to negotiate, I'm going to release these prisoners. I think his objective and intention is to bring it down to a level where the tensions are reduced significantly, and everybody is breathing a sigh of relief there, and hoping that that's going to be sufficient so that he can maintain his nuclear arsenal, which they have worked so hard for so many years, while at the same time getting international pressure and sanctions relaxed. So I think it, he really has been quite masterful. And I think Mr. Trump, who happens to um, like flattery, um, and so the nice things that Kim Jong-un has said about him, he has returned in kind. So and getting the world stage with the president of the United States is a tremendous coup for Kim Jong-un. And what has he actually given up? Well, thankfully, we do have those three citizens back. Mm -hmm. Great on that. He says that he is going to um, retire the nuclear test site. Well, by all reports, it has already collapsed. Mm -hmm. But he has had six nuclear tests already, so he doesn't need to test more. I don't believe that he is going to denuclearize. I don't think he's going to give up the stockpile. I don't think he's going to give up the capability that he and his father and his grandfather worked as a deterrent against some type of military aggression against North Korea. But I think he's going to—he's getting a lot out of this. And I think Mr. Trump, quite frankly, is going to use the summit and to say that, that it has been a success. Even if it's not a success, mm-hmm. he will portray it as such. He will say, well, we've gotten them to agree to this. There are a lot of things that are going on behind the scenes. And Kim Jong-un's strategy, I think, is to draw it out over time, and again, relax that international pressure, get some economic benefits,
3: but retain that nuclear capability. You, I'd make uh, two points, uh, yeah. just sort of <clears throat> key on what John said here. I do think that uh, one uh, difference, in, in contrast to some of the history of our uh, engagement with the North Koreans on things nuclear, is I believe the North Koreans actually achieved whatever they wanted to achieve in the way of a nuclear deterrent. Uh, They don't use the same standards uh, for validating and testing weapons as we might, but in their mind, they achieved whatever it is they they wanted. And that puts them in the position for the first time of not being supplicant, which is the case in our previous engagements with them on nuclear matters. I give a lot of credit as the orchestrator here to President Moon of South Korea. You know, if you're gonna give somebody a Nobel Peace Prize, I'd give it to him because I think he managed his two respective accounts very astutely, the one up to his north and the one here. Mm -hmm. And he uh, figured out how to influence them. Kim Jong-un's case, the North Koreans, really wanted to be present and represented at the Winter Olympics. And I think President Moon exploited that uh, to a further mm-hmm. well. And of course, he mm-hmm. knows how to flatter our, our president uh, by appealing to his uh, ego. Kanye so he, West
2: figured that out. He's done that, <laughs>
3: you know, he's done that very well. Uh, but I do think there's a difference here. When I when I was there, my f- first, uh, Ms. Monaco, first uh, White House issued talking point was <laughs> you must denuclearize. So well, that was a non starter. <laughs> And You're they, welcome. <laughs> they, uh, yeah, I was very obedient. Uh, you know, they went to school on Muammar Gaddafi, and they brought yep. that up. Yep. And he negotiated away his weapons of mass destruction, and you know, it didn't turn out so well for him. Mm-hmm. So I just think uh, I do think it's a good thing that they're going to talk. But I hope yep. that the president would do is something not doesn't comport with his character would be go on a listening tour. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be very useful to get it straight from the horse's mouth, so so to speak, from. One of the family, you know, North Korea is a family-owned country. Uh, exactly what they say they want in the way. What is it that would make them feel secure so they don't don't have to rely on nuclear weapons? That price might be very high, like withdrawing all U.S. forces from the peninsula. Which, of course, not a good thing to do, and not just for the peninsula, but it has huge regional implications.
2: Lisa, I want you to pick this up and then introduce um, your analysis on what pulling out unilaterally pulling out of the Iran. Uh, nuclear agreement. What impact, if any, you think that
1: has on the the conversations
2: to be had in Singapore in June?
1: So the the first thing I was going to say is just to uh, buttress John's point about the shrewdness of uh, Kim Jong-un's positioning here. Let's not forget that two of the individuals who returned early in the wee hours um, uh, of the night uh, last night were uh, detained in the last 15, 16 months during the Trump administration. So to the point of you know, uh, creating a chit that then uh, could be used to position Kim Jong Un. Whether same same deals with the Olympics, like coming in from a from a position of, of strength or or uh, you know high ground. Um, you know, on the nuclear deal. Look, this is uh, it's been described as the most consequential decision uh, that the, that the president has made uh, in his uh, his presidency. And uh, you know the the, the analysis, and, and these two uh, longtime intelligence professionals are probably better to speak to this. But you know the the analysis that it hurts our credibility with the North in, in terms of whether they'd enter into a deal that they think we might renege from later. I'm less compelled by that, just because it I think it applies too much um, uh, too much rationality both to Kim Jong Un and. Uh, you know, I think that's less of a concern than what it does to our credibility with our allies, right? So I'm more concerned about what the Germans, the Brits, the French uh, are, are seeing uh, in terms of their efforts to work with us, to, uh, to continue to, to impose sanctions. All of those things are going to crumble, um, and it's just one more chink in the armor of our transatlantic alliance. That's, I'm I'm more concerned about that. John, can you pick that up? And then, then, I mean, I'll just throw some examples out there. Um,
2: You know, taking, I think, two or three trips to Europe to affirm our commitment to Article 5, pulling out of the Paris Accord gleefully, talking um, very joyfully about caring more about Pittsburgh than Paris as though the great United States of America can't do both. Um, the message it sends to our allies. And then something that a, um, a former intelligence official who admonishes me often not to be so emotional in my coverage of Donald Trump, who, me, emotional? Um, uh, said that the real loss in pulling out of the deal is that we've never known or had the potential to know so much about what Iran was doing mm-hmm. as we did during the period that we were in the deal, the yeah. Obamacare-era deal. Yeah.
4: Well, the Iranian nuclear agreement was uh, blessed by the UN Security Council re- mm-hmm. resolution. Which we were a party to. So, um, and I think it's just uh, Mr. Trump's following up on an inane campaign promise that was based on a very flawed understanding of the deal and then intentional misrepresentation of what the deal did. Uh, you know, Jim and I and Lisa were involved in that engagement with the Iranians. I- I'm surprised at how much the Iranians gave up, I really am, in terms of getting rid of two thirds of their centrifuges, 90% of their stockpile, a very, very invasive inspection regime. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the other signatories to the deal are going to adhere to it, um, the Europeans as well as Russia and China. And I'm hoping that the, uh, that the Iranians are not going to uh, start to violate the terms of the agreement. But I must tell you, a lot of the European firms, you know, Airbus, Total, and others are wondering whether the secondary sanctions then are going to come in and are going to penalize them for continuing to work with Iran. So uh, it, it, just, it sets off just a chain of events that, as Lisa pointed out, what it does to our credibility around the world in terms of our word. The commitment of one administration can just be tossed aside by the next. Mm-hmm. But also, this emphasis on bilateral deals yeah. and dismissing the utility and the importance in this globalized world of multilateral arrangements, whether it's the climate accords, the Paris Accords, whether it is um, the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, Uh, even looking at things like you know NAFTA um, and just dismissing that and this mantra of America first America first is being heard around the world by a lot of our partners and allies in some of the smaller countries that the United States is going to use its muscularity to advantage itself at the expense of others and ever since World War II the United States has had I think a very well-deserved reputation of trying to help all boats rise Yes, we're doing it to advance our national security interests. Yes, we're trying to advance our economic uh, geopolitical interests. But we're not doing it at the expense of others. Well, Mr. Trump, I think, is just sending a clear signal that you know, these are, the, all these deals are awful. And why are they awful? Well, because they were negotiated by his predecessors. Mm-hmm. and They came before him. He doesn't understand them. He misrepresents them. And in his usual way of you know these rhetorical broadsides, he has convinced a lot of people around the world. Because you know, give him his due, he's an amazing. You know, I think of the the movie that's out. You know, the world's greatest showman. <laughs> a lot of rhetorical flourishes, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing in my mind. Mm-hmm. If I might use my you know, <laughs> Shakespearean.
1: <background. laughs> I love it. <laughs> and then, I love it. The danger so, to, to what, what John says is true. This this retreat from any multilateral. Um, work any cooperation. When you look at the major threats that we all spent, uh, you know, our time in government dealing with, from terrorism to <coughs> proliferation to cyber uh, threats to global health threats, every single one of them requires a coordinated. Uh, global response. The, the US has been an effective leader, time and again, of those global responses, and if you have an agenda that says America operates in isolation and doesn't have the uh, confidence of its, its former partners to address those threats, I think that's, that is a huge concern.
3: So one issue here is, uh, in, in the light of this, is well, what's the plan B?
5: Hmm.
3: Well, the plan B is a better deal. Now, presumably, that means or infers, since they never really said it, what that means is we want to not only induce Iran to uh, attenuate its moderate its nuclear behavior, but uh, stop all its other nefarious activities uh, in the region. But yet, we're going to do that with less than what we brought to bear just for the one dimension that the Iranians agreed to negotiate with, which was nuclear only. We weren't there was never the objective to create, make Iran the shining city on the, on the hill. That <laughs> wasn't in the cards at all. So they only agreed to do the one narrow thing. Well, we're uh, to this point about uh, dropping out of our alliances. Uh, no one is going to join us uh, to uh, reassemble the international coalition of people that is what really brought uh, under the sanctions regime that brought Iran to the the negotiating table in the first place. So we're gonna be hanging out there all by ourselves trying to induce an even broader reform of behavior than the last administration tried to do with just nuclear. And of course for me, you know, which would you rather have, a state-sponsored terrorism with a nuclear weapons capability or a state-sponsored terrorism without a nuclear weapons capability? I think I'd pick the latter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the agreement was flawed. What I would have preferred is use that as a building block and leverage to get after the, this other nefarious behavior, and we're, we're giving up the leverage. The other thing that's bad about it is internally Iran, because what this does is played, plays to the hardliner narrative. And there's a, a big upheaval underfoot there in Iran, as exemplified, I think, by the nationwide demonstrations, the frustration, particularly on the part of the young people in Iran who want reform and are tired of the corruption of the regime. So what we do here is play to that narrative of opposition to engaging with the United States.
2: Yeah. Yeah, this, uh, someone said that this does just that. This strengthens the hardliners. This furthers the impression that America and Israel do not want the best future for the Iranian youth. And this is what put even the deal's harshest critics, many of them on the Republican side, in the corner of staying in the deal. Right. Do, do, do you think it's possible? I mean, you, you said that the, the Trump message is to get a better deal. Is, it, is there a better deal to be had?
3: Well, why on earth would they want to engage with us now at all? Right, and particularly since you know this was not a uh, was not a bilateral deal between the United States and Iran. Right. There were five other countries involved, and they're not dropping out.
1: Right,
3: and so okay, U.S., uh, good luck. And the thought, the prospect of trying to induce broader behavior change on the part of the Iranians with less of less leverage to induce it, I don't get it.
4: As Jim said, it was always seen as a building block, that it was not going to mean that peace was going to break out in the region, or that was going to change its ways. But it was going to give us some breathing room on the nuclear front. And it would also help to encourage the moderates to continue along that path. <coughs> While we simultaneously then try to attack them on the ballistic missile front, the military front, the terrorism front, all the troublemaking and nefarious activities there. But to try to do it all in one fell swoop, I think we all agreed that that would have been a bridge too far. Let's make sure we can put that nuclear program in a box for a period of time that's going to give us then an opportunity to build upon it in that dimension, but also in the other dimensions. Now you've taken away that building block. Now maybe they have a great and wise plan out there. Um, but
3: Do
2: you think uh, they do? I, no. <laughs> Does anyone
3: disagree? I, don't. I, I hope springs Ho- do. Crazy
0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. Thanks for listening. Today's conversation is a preview for the Aspen Security Forum, a four-day event held in Aspen, Colorado in late July. It's a gathering of national security officials, leading thinkers, journalists, industry leaders, and concerned citizens. We featured a talk from the 2017 forum in the podcast. You might remember hearing President Trump's Chief of Staff, John Kelly, Kelly was Homeland Security Secretary before taking the White House job.
3: Mr. Trump walked in, it wasn't really an interview, and said, I'd like you to take the hardest and what I consider to be the toughest job in the federal government. I panicked for a bit. I thought he was going to offer me the State Department. Uh, (laughs) All I could think about is how do I get out of this, and he said, said Homeland Security.
0: Listen to the entire conversation by searching Aspen Ideas To Go on your podcast player, or find a link in our show notes. Back to our featured talk, here's NBC's Nicole Wallace.
2: I want to keep whizzing around the world. I want to ask all of you about Russia. Um, Do you believe now that much of what you knew when you testified, John, about a year ago about he and she who maybe wittingly or unwittingly aided the Russian efforts, do we now as a public know more that you knew and couldn't address then? Or is is there still more that we don't understand about what you all were dealing with in the summer and fall of 2016 in terms of Russian meddling?
4: Well, I think, um, like part of the other folks here, I've learned a lot since Inauguration Day of 2017 about a lot of things, (laughs) but also about the extent and the nature of what the Russians were doing about how they were able to adopt all these personas in the social media environment mm-hmm. and present themselves and purported to be American citizens, uh, I have to give the Russians credit for their sophistication in that digital environment, their sophistication in terms of how they took full advantage of the freedoms and liberties that make this country great in order to present their case and to try to undermine the integrity of the election. So I think there's a lot more that's out there. You know, Given that at least Jim and I were involved in foreign intelligence collection, any incidental collection that we might have picked up something about an American person, we would immediately funnel it over to the FBI. Mm-hmm. And it was their responsibility then to pull the threads. But knowing the Russians the way we do, and also with great experience here that just a half dozen years ago, there were about a dozen Russian illegals who had burrowed into this country and had become basically American Americans. Uh, that were then tapped by the Russians to be able to facilitate Russian intelligence objectives. I have no doubt whatsoever that the Russians, during this whole run-up to the campaign and to the election, were utilizing individuals who were both witting and unwitting, and some people who were just blindly ignoring what the standards, what the, the norms, and what the laws are about consorting with foreigners. So I think that Bob Mueller, who is a national treasure, is going to continue to uncover it. I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that Bob Mueller's team know that we don't know. We're all eager to see what it is. But uh, the Russians are, unfortunately, very, very good. It's an insidious threat. Um, And I think they were able to dupe a number of people and get people to work with them in a very, very um, unfortunate manner.
2: Do you think that includes people on the Trump campaign?
4: I wouldn't exclude anybody from that category. So I, I want I I the
2: same question to you, but, but I'd also like to add to the conversation, John McCain's excerpt today, some, some from his book leaked, and he, he said, Putin isn't just at war with a, one political party or, or one president or one candidate. He's at war with the West. Do you agree with that? Well,
3: that's true, yeah. and uh, we're going to have at least six more years of him. Uh, you know, he, a tremendous animus towards Putin.
1: Putin, 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 right? Putin clarify. I'm talking about no, six more years of Putin. Right? Okay,
3: yeah, just, just. Oh
5: yeah.
3: Well, maybe the other one too. Right? Yeah. Uh, I, I would just say that uh, I think we had a pretty good understanding of the broad outlines of what the Russians were doing. Uh, I had did not appreciate what, you know what we've learned the details of what we learned about how they exploited social media which was the big difference. You know, there's a long history of the Russians interfering in elections, theirs and other people's. And certainly going back at least to the 60s where they involved themselves some way or another and try to influence the outcome of elections. But never as direct and aggressive and multidimensional as what they did in 2016. And you have to think they exceeded, you know, beyond their wildest expectations. First, just sowing d- d- discord and discontent and doubt in this country about our, uh, about our system. They had messages for everybody. Black Lives Matter, yeah. white supremacists, pro-gun rights, anti-gun rights, didn't matter. They had messages to exploit everybody. And you know, the election was settled by eight, uh, less than 80,000 votes in three states, and the Russians deliberately targeted those three states. So, you know, and we've since learned uh, uh, a lot uh, what's come out about uh, about the details uh, of, of all this uh, you know another thing about the Russians we, we have a tendency to forget you know they're, they're sort of waging war against us they're waging an active war in terms of information operations campaign which is going on right now and they're preparing for a kinetic war and their modernization program their st- strategic strategic nuclear arsenal is impressive and scary and if you paid any attention to you know, Putin's speech on the 1st of March, which laid out, you know, five weapons of vengeance and all this sort of thing in varying degrees of maturity. You know, the Russians only have one adversary in mind when they build those things, it's us. And Putin, uh, strong animus towards uh, the West and, and towards what this country means, and uh, our, our system and our standards and all that he is, adamantly opposed to that. He characterized the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union as the greatest uh, geopolitical disaster of the 20th century. And he, and he holds us responsible for that. So he is not our friend.
1: If you look at the indictment that was uh, unsealed on February 16th from the Mueller team, 13 Russian individuals and entities, the sheer scope of that effort, um, that I urge folks who haven't read it, is a it is a page turner what we as a former prosecutor used to call it speaking indictment, it really lays out a a very thorough uh, conspiracy there. Uh, So I think that is something, obviously, that we've learned uh, since leaving government. And the 30, some 3,500 Facebook ads that were uh, uh, released in in the last uh, day or two exposing exactly what Jim said, um, going after every division, every schism in our society. Uh, I think um, you know Senator McCain's exactly right. The, Putin is at war with the West, its leadership, uh, its role in the world, its, um, its vision of itself as and the US as a shining city on a hill. I think Putin wanted nothing uh, more than to uh, say, you know the Americans, they're not all that. And I'm gonna and I'm gonna foment that discontent. And
4: that DOJ indictment of those 13 Russian citizens and in the Internet Research Agency yep. of the Russians never once, mentioned once the Russian government, or Russian intelligence services. Yeah. That was just individual private Russian citizens. Mm-hmm. I'm expecting that the next shoe that will one of the shoes to drop soon will be the Russian officials are actually engaged yep. in that type of attack against our election. And that would serve, then, as the basis for conspiracy. Because you can't conspire with a foreign citizen, but you can conspire with a foreign government. So I do think that what we've seen so far is the tip of the iceberg. But clearly, as the Intelligence Community assessments stated, this was directed by Mr. Putin. And it was something that the Russian government, it was a matter of policy, which means that there were Russian government officials there
2: involved. You both have take, taken the turn for me to the Mueller investigation. And I want to stay there. Um, you. Um, there's a debate that's probably more robust on the right than the left about the uh, about special counsels in general. Um, and one of the debates I have often with them is, well, if if not Bob Mueller, then then whom? I mean, shouldn't the Trump administration have been after the 13 people that Bob Mueller had to indict? And I want you to speak to the role Bob Mueller is playing in our um, justice system in terms mm-hmm. of punishing the people who meddled in 2016. And when you when you look at what Bob Mueller is doing, and you look at what the current national security officials who've gone to Capitol Hill and under oath have testified to, you've had Christopher Wright testify under oath that the president's never directed him to do anything (coughs) to protect us from Russia in in the next election in 2018. You've had Admiral Rogers testify under oath that we're doing nothing to um, disincentivize Putin from doing what he did in 2016 again. Um, You've had other intelligence officials up there uh, under oath not a, one of them has ever said that the president has ever asked them to do anything to protect this country or our democracy or our elections from Russian intervention. So speak to that fact,
1: the predicament therein with this president, and the importance of Bob Mueller right now. So I quite agree with with John Brennan. Bob Mueller is a national treasurer, uh, having served as his chief of staff um, uh, you know, I, I think there's nobody better. We are very, very fortunate as a country, in my view, uh, that he has answered the call once again. Uh, he he signed up to go to Vietnam and lead a rifle platoon and earn a bronze star and uh, with a V for valor. He uh, served his country in the Justice Department as a prosecutor uh, and led the FBI through the most tumultuous times. Um, up until now in its recent <laughs> history. Uh, so uh, we are very fortunate, indeed, that he is, he is leading this investigation. And he will be driven, and his team will be driven, by the facts and the law. Um, the, the White House if, ought, to be, um, ought to be rooting for uh, his conclusion, whatever it is, um, because I still believe it, will, it has the best chance of having any legitimacy in our very riven uh, politics. Do you agree with
3: that, Jim? Yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> What's the
2: danger if, if Donald Trump wakes up angry, watches Fox and Friends, and fires Bob Mueller?
3: Well, uh, I hope he doesn't do that. I think off, uh, days. it would set off a firestorm. I think it would be uh, uh, you know, not only, not only on the hill, but uh, in the streets. I really think that would be a, uh, a bad thing to happen.
4: I think Rod Rosenstein is probably more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think Devin Nunes is trying to do, is to find a pretext. Since the Department of Justice rightly is refusing to provide information about uh, sources uh, of very, very sensitive intelligence to the oversight committees, which is something that we would never do—is share identities. Mm-hmm. You protect them jealously, you know, and, and vigorously. But I think Devin Nunes is looking for reason to fire Rod Rosenstein, which would then pave the way for having someone to constrain mm-hmm. Bob Mueller. Um, and so I, I really am concerned about what's going to happen in the in the coming weeks and months because I, I do think that Mr. Trump and others see that you know the, the circle is tightening a bit yeah. and Bob Mueller's investigation continues to move forward. Mike Pence just said, I think in an interview, that you know he hopes this thing is going to be brought to you know conclusion very soon. Wrap it up. That is not going to phase Bob Mueller no. one iota. Uh, he is not going to move any faster or any slower than the situation requires. So um, I think uh, you know we're going to be facing you know some painful times ahead, more painful. I think this is going to get worse before it gets better. It really is going to be a true test of our democracy and the institutions of governance and, and checks and balances within the system. But I'm confident that this country is strong and that we're going to be able to you know get through it. but uh, it's going to be uh, I guess no, no pun intended, stormy weathers before we get there. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'll leave that right there. Um, I, I have a cable show. I get to do that all the time. I want to ask you, because the last time we were together, we were with General Hayden, and the topic was was a, an assault on the truth. And before there was a war on the Department of Justice and the FBI, before the, the Trump-appointed director of the FBI was rebuffed by men like Paul Ryan, when he begged, when he said he had grave concerns about a FISA application being shared with Devin Nunes, of all people. Um, Paul Ryan said, eh, he went to the White House. The White House said, eh, they released it. Um, But before that, before the war on the Justice Department and the FBI, this president, before he even became president, was at war with the intelligence community. Um, Can you talk about what has transpired and and how they have had to adjust? He's their chief client. The intelligence product is delivered to the president. We understand from reporting that the White House has never pushed back on. He doesn't read a PDB. uh, he's. I guess they, they go through things verbally with him, but they don't um, brief anything orally about Russia. So that's just in the written version that he doesn't read. So talk to me about serving in America's intelligence community under Donald.
3: Well, Trump. I think when the four of us uh, went to Trump Tower and briefed the uh, briefed uh, then President like Trump on on the intelligence community assessment on the sixth of January of uh, twenty seventeen and. You know, it was pretty clear then. uh, I mean, it was uh, cordial, professional for the most part, and uh, all that. But uh, I think it's very clear that the great difficulty uh, accepting uh, any evidence that indicates that question the legitimacy of his election. I think at the at the root of, uh, I mean, there may be other things at at root, but and he's been very consistent about that uh, ever, ever since. And of course. Uh, we sort of got off to a bad start. uh, While we were still on, we had 10 days left in office, and he was calling the uh, characterizing intelligence community as as Nazis. And uh, I felt I couldn't uh, sit still with that, and uh, I called him, and amazingly, he took the call. You know, what I had to lose, I had 10 days left, so. (laughs) Uh, And I tried to, uh, at the time, impart to him what a national treasure he was inheriting in the form of the, of the US intelligence community. And he had thousands of dedicated men and women, some of whom serve in very bad places and great, at great risk to their own lives, uh, to support policymakers to include him as policymaker number one. And uh, I wrote him a note accompanying his first uh, PDB uh, about uh, I hope he would embrace the notion of truth to power. Because that's kind of fundamental tenet of the intelligence community. And it's my belief—I've said this repeatedly—that I believe the intelligence community, the men and women of the intelligence community, are going to continue to serve up truth to power, whether the power listens to the truth or not. <laughs> and not listening to the truth, uh, I think, puts over the long run puts the nation in peril.
1: You agree? Absolutely. Um, you know, the the job of the intelligence community is to um, give rigorous analysis based on facts, based on uh, all sources of intelligence, to present it. Um, Look, I I was present in many, many hours of Situation Room meetings when these guys um, delivered, uh, I think, analysis that sometimes they thought the rest of the table didn't want to hear. They didn't (laughs) shade it one bit, they didn't fuzz it, they didn't mealy-mouth it, um, and it helped um, inform Policy decisions with rigorous analysis. Nobody uh, thought for one minute that these guys or the men and women that they led uh, would tolerate uh, such shading. Uh, and you know, if, if you don't have the trust from uh, the political leaders with the men and women of the intelligence community, that is—that's a real danger for uh, policy decisions.
3: I will say, I think it, that period may have been a high watermark of the bond between uh, director of CIA and, and the DNI. Yep. And uh, nobody could be prouder uh, to have as my foxhole buddy, John Brennan. <laughs> right, back got you. Uh, the, the three of us spend a lot of time um,
4: talking to young American students mm-hmm. at schools, the ones who want to enter those very noble professions of intelligence law enforcement. And what we do is try to spend a lot of time telling them, don't listen to all this craziness in Washington, all this these political commentary, whatever. What the men and women of CIA, NSA, FBI, Department of Homeland Security do on a daily basis is so vital to this country's security and to the future. And so are uh, the people who are in the, in the trenches right now are used to this stuff. Yes, it's dispiriting. But they'll continue to do their mission. The two constituencies I worry about, or the up-and-coming generation, the ones that we need to rely on for our futures, but also the families of CIA officers, FBI agents, and others, the ones who keep the home fires burning, the ones who actually make the sacrifices, the ones that have to juggle things when their loved one goes off to a place far away for extended periods of time, and they're not there to help the kids with homework. Those husbands and wives and mothers and fathers and others, they're the ones that must say to their loved ones when they come home, why are you doing this, honey? Yeah. President of the United States is, is denigrating, disparaging your work and your profession as they're trying to make ends meet in you know a high cost area like Washington, D.C. Yeah. So I think I just, those comments are despicable.
3: I'd just add to John's uh, point about the importance of young people, and, and, and uh, we, we both spent a lot of time making the rounds at colleges and universities, and uh, I was in Erie, Pennsylvania yesterday, middle America, you know? <laughs> And uh, I spoke at uh, Erie County uh, Bar Association Observance of Law Day, which I thought was very impressive. And before this, I spoke to about 125 high school and, and uh, college students in Erie, proper, or Erie County. And I'll tell you, it restores your faith. These kids are wonderful, smart, thoughtful, ask great questions, uh, and are interested in public service. And not surprisingly, I'm pushing you know, <laughs> intelligence community, uh, trying to recruit. That's a, a geezer responsibility, I think. <laughs> and uh, it's really quite uh, inspiring and uplifting. Uh, and I think that is an uh, important thing for people like us uh, to do, to reach out to them. Because that is, that is the lifeblood of the intelligence community, certainly. But the <laughs> danger, the the, it's harder to recruit, <laughs> though,
1: when you've got um, you know, a president making the word career civil servant a set of dirty words, right? And that is, that's really dispiriting.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Aspen Ideas To Go. In the latest episode of our sister podcast, Aspen Insight, a group of Virginia students are hoping to change hate into acceptance with song. The Adam's Beat Choir is the first Muslim youth choir in the country. Singing is not traditionally affiliated with Islam, but the kids aren't just breaking norms by singing in their mosque. They're performing in other surprising places and building bridges of unity at the same time. Find the episode by searching Aspen Insight in your favorite podcast player or find a link in our show notes. Here's the rest of today's discussion. Nicole Wallace.
2: I, I hear you, young people are gonna save us, but from what, what will be left? I mean, he, he is leaving so much carnage. He's, he's firing people on Twitter and the jobs go unfilled because no one wants to go in there and have a reputation. I, I just don't wanna sugarcoat the current state of affairs. And, and, and so I grapple, and I'm with young people, with you know, y- yes, go do these jobs, but, but you know, are they ever gonna be the same? I don't know.
3: Well, I think uh, the question raised is the, the extent to which we are resilient. Uh, the the resilience of our institutions. And but
2: if 40% are buying what he's selling, mm-hmm. uh, how many of us need to bounce back? Well,
3: yeah, I mean, uh, that's that's precisely the issue, you know, uh, and how, how are we gonna come out of this? You know, uh, just a shameless plug, uh, my book's coming out on the 22nd <laughs> of this month, and uh, the only argument my collaborator and I had was on the last three pages, and, and we had a pretty uh, heated argument about how to, how to end the book, you know? So we wrote a happy face version, <laughs> and we wrote a dark, very dark conclusion. And <laughs> just ended up by saying, you know, the United States has survived traumas before. The Civil War, a trauma I lived through, Vietnam, that was, that was my war in Southeast Asia. And in the end, we came out, in both cases, the better for it. So, and that's where I stopped.
5: <laughs> I just
3: left it there. What this is a very sense? large and painful national kidney stone. <laughs>
2: The
4: relief we feel afterward is going to be just exhilarating.
2: But, but, but I, I'm not, I'm not going to let you go on that because... because I can't top that image. <laughs> especially since you're my colleague. This is what I would do, this is what I would do to you on TV. Um, when it's gone, what, what does the body look like? Mm-hmm. Does it believe the truth? Is there a truth? Or do 40%... Uh, I mean, in Erie, there are a lot of Trump voters who say, I don't know what to believe anymore. You know, you you seem nice, but I don't watch your network. I watch Fox, and they say that the FBI has been taken over by the deep state, and they hate Trump. They don't believe the FBI. So if the FBI knocks on their door in a law enforcement matter, I mean, I I, I think a lot of people are scared about what happens. I mean, what does the body look like after it passes this
3: test? It's a great question. And this, by the way, is precisely what the Russians do. Uh, They feed that. And, they, and what they want is people to doubt that there, uh, that there is a know, that, f- knowable, that facts are not knowable. And, and it, well, if they've done that in their disinformation where they just cast doubt that people are skeptical, cynical, will never know the truth. It could be this, could be that. And what we've done is digress into reality bubbles where people have their own sets of facts. And you know, that's, that's, that's very scary. And the uh, question, you know, are we gonna survive this? institutions resilient or not, uh, I'd like to think so.
1: I I think that um, the answer to your question is potentially we're less safe, right? So right down to brass tacks, if um, the FBI, when they stand up and an agent raises his or her hand in court to swear to tell the truth in a uh, investigation or a case where they have to be believed by that jury, by that judge, Uh, If somebody is not willing to report a crime to them and cooperate, that has real practical public safety consequences, I believe. Mm. Um, So am I hopeful that we're resilient? I am. The data points that we are are as follows. I think the courts are stepping up. Uh, I think the press is stepping up, uh, and we have to uh, continue to have faith in those institutions and to be engaged, whether it's young people or you know, others uh, you know who are engaged in um, in public service, in political work, in running for office, because they are so concerned.
2: I'll give you the last word, and then this beautifully, elegantly dressed man has somewhere to go. Okay. <laughs>
4: Very unfortunately, I think Mr. Trump, it has been fueling polarization and partisanship in this country. And that is very much, I think, uh, undermining what this country really is all about and what needs to do in the future to confront these challenges overseas as well as domestically. And we really do need to have the people who are in either elected positions or others or appointed positions be able to speak openly, honestly, and candidly both to him as well as to the American people and stop apologizing, making excuses for really bad behavior, Mm -hmm. for unethical behavior, for things that Lisa mentioned before, just breaking norms left and right. What signals that's sending to the young children of this country? What signals it's sending to the world? And we need people like John McCain and Jeff Flake and others who have had the, I think, intestinal fortitude to speak out. Mm -hmm. But too many of those, I think, and speaking of myself, I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. I have friends and enemies on both sides of the aisle.
5: And <laughs> very much you know <laughs> love the friends on
4: both sides of the aisle. But I think if the Republican Party is going to salvage itself from the trauma of Mr. Trump, and that's what I think it is, mm-hmm. they really need to be able to reach deep inside themselves and find their North Star mm-hmm. and say, are they Republican partisans first mm-hmm. and Trump loyalists first? or are they Americans first? And are they going to do what's right for this country? That I think gets the point that Jim was talking about in terms of resilience. Mm -hmm. This country can get through this, but it's going to take some very good women and men to be able to stand up and be able to do what is right on behalf of this country and the future generation of Americans. Okay,
2: and I think we have time for some questions, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm wondering how talking about national security to non-experts has changed in the last year, whether it's on Twitter or going to Erie, Pennsylvania. Or wherever Are the questions changing? Are how people is receiving the information
4: changing? Is it totally the same?
3: Well, I think first of all, uh, the, in general, and this started before this administration, there's a lot more uh, transparency. Uh, we were sort of driven to that, but that's a good thing. And as a consequence, there's a lot more information out there. Uh, and uh, a lot of people do pay attention to it. And I would, I, I guess, a quick answer to your question is, I think it has raised the level of uh, sophistication of the questions that I get. Uh, and I've been to a number of, you know, big colleges, universities, and small ones in remote areas. And I uh, am always impressed with uh, the level. Uh, now maybe these are just the people that, you know, brave enough to ask questions and all that sort of thing. But uh, As a general rule, uh, I think on a higher plane.
2: I would just add that as a TV viewers, um, you know, foreign policy used to not be the sort of thing that would mm-hmm. keep an audience, you know, from going outside to play with their kids. These guys are coming up next and like, I mean, that's a tease. I mean, John <laughs> Brendan is gonna speak on the air. I mean, people have an insatiable, and I, and I worry that it comes from a place of fear, so I'm not yeah. saying this is a good thing, but people do have an intense interest in what, what what people like like all three of, of, of these public servants know. And so people are more interested. They are asking smarter questions. And they're desperate for information and reassurance.
4: I will say Nicole is one of the, the best anchors. No, you really are. Because you're knowledgeable, you're balanced, and as I think I said to you, eminently sensible on these issues. And thank goodness for the For the State and the media in this country uh, being able to get things out there. But I must say, the ideologues on the right and the left who misrepresent the facts in order to espouse and, and advance uh, political agendas, I think, do a disservice. And I think we had to have more honest representation of what's going on out there and less of the ideological fervor that I think is just driving people on whichever side of the political spectrum to just become more convinced about the rightness of the right or the rightness of the left. We need more people in the middle who are going to really talk about what this country needs to do together.
5: Yes, sir. Uh, In terms of what provoked uh, Putin, Hillary, uh, you know, the Obama administration had a reset with Russia, and they had this big plan for technological transfers and uh, joint ventures and what have you. It didn't work out. And uh, Hillary launched a huge campaign in, in the Ukraine and led the West on a huge campaign to attack Putin and the Russians. Now, it got very personal between Hillary and Putin, as you probably all know. And and Putin then decided, this, what I gather, is who lost Russia. There was a lot to do that wasn't reported here in the press going on in the Ukraine with Hillary, with all her NGOs, and coming into the Ukraine it would be similar to Russia going into Mexico and trying to, con- in trying to get involved in the political situation there. What they're doing, by the way. We, yeah, <laughs> right. And we probably were going to react. And, and, uh, and in any event, do you have any insight into what has provoked the attack by Russia, by Putin, on the United States? And does this campaign in the Ukraine play into that at all?
3: Well, uh, let me try and then others jump in here. But uh, the, yes, there is great a- personal animus by Putin on, uh, for both Clintons, both President Clinton and Secretary Clinton. And he held her directly responsible for fomenting what he thought was a cultural revolution in 2011, intended to over, overturn him and his, and, and, uh, his regime. <clears throat> Ukraine for Putin is part of this. Uh, you know, I've always characterized him as a throwback to the czars, not. Uh, uh, Soviet or communist ideologue, necessarily, and he has this grand vision of great Russia. And it's unthinkable for Putin not to have a toehold of some sort in Ukraine, which you know they used to call Little Russia. And, you know, seizing Crimea was just righting an injustice that uh, was done some time ago when, I think it was Khrushchev or somebody, gave, gave Crimea to uh, Ukraine. So now he's in position to write that wrong. But it starts with what we talked about before this general animus towards the United States and all that we stand for and our values and our system. And then he, he clearly, uh, we saw this, uh, focused on uh, hatred of uh, the Clintons, both the Clintons and especially her for attempting to foment a fulment, uh, color revolution. Um, Vladimir Putin.
4: Is paranoid, and I think with some justification.
3: <laughs>
1: What's not justified
4: is that he sees the United States hand behind everything—the right. release of the Panama Papers, uh, the uh, the disallowing of the Russian Olympians because of the the drug uh, uh, mm-hmm. doping scandal, and so many things—and uh, um, also the color revolution. He, he sees CIA's hand behind everything that goes wrong for Russia. Not true. But where it's legitimate paranoia is because he sees the continued march, or had at least, the continued march of democracy that was going eastward and was encroaching upon his near abroad. And you point up Ukraine. Well, Ukraine was right in the middle of that. And he didn't want Ukraine to gravitate toward Europe. Um, and you know, Putin sees NATO expansion continuing that way. And what's the raison d'etre of NATO? It's against the former Soviet Union and now Russia. So I think he interprets everything as a move against him and our efforts to try to change the regime in, in Moscow. But, and I think a lot of the statements about you know, Hillary's NGOs in Ukraine were, are overstatements. Yes, there were efforts to try to prop up some of these very nascent democratic initiatives inside of Ukraine that Putin saw as a direct effort to try to displace Russian influence there. But that animus toward both Clintons goes back many years.
1: Lisa, you have the last word, and I think we're out of time. Nothing to add beyond um, you know the the I think the points really we we end where we began, which is this is a this is about animus towards the West, toward the idea of the United States as the global um, you know validator of the and protector of the world order, and on that, you know being that shining city on the hill, and he wants nothing more than to knock us off that pedestal.
2: There's no greater honor than sharing a stage with these three. They have other places to go, so thank you.
0: James Clapper is the former director of National Intelligence under President Obama. John Brennan led the CIA. He was chief counterterrorism advisor to Obama. Lisa Monaco was the first woman to serve as assistant attorney general for national security. Nicole Wallace hosts MSNBC's Deadline White House. Their conversation was held May 10th in Washington, DC. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go so you never miss an episode. Follow the Aspen Security Forum year round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Security. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Homeland Security programming team is Rob Walker and John Hogan. Clark Irvin is the program's chairman. Our theme music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.